0: Hello and welcome to Coco Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. My name is Dr. Paula Sugadi, I'm the host of this podcast. Today we are fortunate to have with us a specialist in endocrinology, Dr. Ashwini Gori. Thank you Dr. Gori for coming to our program today.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation. Definitely
0: my honor and pleasure to be here. Dr. Gauri attended medical school at the Bharati Vidyapith Medical College in Pune, India. She then did biomedical engineering at the Virginia Commonwealth University. She did her medical residency at the Abington Memorial Hospital in Pennsylvania, and her fellowship in endocrinology, diabetes, and medical genetics was at the Medical University of South Carolina, where she was chief fellow. She's had academic appointments at the Abington Memorial Hospital as physician and at Temple University Hospital as hospitalist. She's board certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism. Dr. Ashwini Gori has been with the Jones Endocrinology Center since 2011. Her notable achievements, in addition to being a mother, and a wife, is that she is an Indian classical dancer, Bharatanatyam. Can you tell us some about this dance and something on Gungurus? So Bharatnatyam
1: is one of the oldest classical dance forms in India, originated in the temples of India in probably the second century, Uh, really uh, was a way of paying respect to the gods, but probably also a way of propagating the culture through the different generations to come. If you've seen different dance forms being performed, Bharatnatyam is one which has a lot of intricate foot movements. Mm. It has this very typical posture, a straight torso, bent legs, and lots of intricate foot movements. So if you look or think about now performing this on stage, it would be very hard for people way back or at the end uh, to really notice those movements. So gungroos are a, a set of metallic beads, actually, uh, often strung together in a sequence, 50 to 200. You start out with about 50 when you're young. And as you get older and you get more proficient in your dance form, you add gungrus to it. But the gungrus not only make a beautiful sound, they also help the audience follow those intricate footsteps. So just beautifully designed and definitely something worth looking at. Even though it started in temples, I will say it is now a very popular dance form. So I would encourage you to maybe YouTube it or check out the
0: next onstage performance. One of my daughters actually has done one of these dances before when she was in college. So yes, it's (laughs) more mainstream than you think. So today we're going to be talking about how all the endocrine problems, especially as relates to women, pregnant women, and how we can identify some of the risks and mitigate some of the risks. And... Throughout this talk, I'm going to give brief histories of endocrinology here and there, and you can add, you know, or take away from what I'm saying. So just on a brief history of endocrinology, endocrinology is a field of medicine that deals with endocrine glands and hormones of the body. The history of endocrinology probably dates back to the dark ages between the fifth and the 14th centuries, when victors of battles ate their enemies' organs, the brain, the heart, and the sex organs, thinking they contained important powers. And this is indeed an antiquated version of hormone replacement. So classically, a hormone is a chemical substance that is secreted into the bloodstream and acts on distant tissues, usually to regulate things, a sort of chemical messenger. In the 17th and 18th centuries, perhaps one of the most notable historical displays of endocrinology was the practice of castration, and this was probably the first evident history of endocrinology. People used to undergo castration, that is, termination of testicular activity, before puberty to prevent puberty and preserve the soprano singing voices of young male singers so to maintain a pure and forceful voice and to enhance breathing control. These men became known as the castrati. The practice came to an end in the 20th century when people understood that there were many adverse side effects, such as loss of hair with hair recession and longer than normal lengths of arms and legs. Now diabetes was first recognized around 1500 BCE by the ancient Egyptians who considered it then a rare condition in which a person urinated excessively and lost weight. The term diabetes mellitus Reflecting the fact that the urine of those affected had a sweet taste was first used by the Greek physician Aratios, who lived from about 80 to 138 CE. It was not until 1776, however, that Matthew Dobson actually measured the concentration of glucose in the urine of such patients and found it to be increased. Now, sex hormones were identified in the late 19th and 28th centuries. So, Dr. Gori, I'm going to go back to you. Relating to now, today, what is the most common endocrine disorder of adolescent or young women?
1: Beautiful history, I will say. I have nothing more to add. If you just asked me what's the most Common endocrine disorders, but since you mentioned adolescent and young women, I am going to say polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS as we commonly know it. So generally speaking, it's very important to think about what age group or what demographic we are looking at. In general, when we think about endocrine disorders, thyroid disorders are probably some of the most common ones to pop up or to think about. If we are thinking about pregnant women, diabetes is probably the most common endocrine disorder that we think of. And then if you think about adolescent and childbearing age women, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome is one of the most important endocrine disorders. What's very interesting, so the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Medicine really looked into the incidence and prevalence of endocrine disorders and metabolic disorders through populations, male and female. And believe it or not, even as an endocrinologist, this came as a little bit of a surprise, or maybe not, to me. Osteopenia and osteoporosis are by far the most common endocrine disorder in women.
0: And we're going to delve into that, but can you just define in layman's terms osteopenia and osteoporosis?
1: So talking to my patients, I always tell them if your bone starts looking a little bit thinner, it's good to have pictures or really when you're building a house, if you have less bricks than you should, so there are holes in between, you might say, that structure is getting thinner, that thinning out of bone in the first stages is called osteopenia, and where it's extremely thin to the point of this may break or shatter, now that's osteoporosis. In scientific terms, we always talk in terms of standard deviations. So we have your average bone density that's expected for, say, a woman of 50 years of age. And if you are beyond or less than two standard deviations below that bone density, it's called osteoporosis. So definitely not a topic for today's podcast, but something to think about. That's probably the most common endocrine disorder in women. Surprise, surprise, even in men.
0: But when do women achieve the most bone mass. So,
1: And that may help us transition nicely to our PCOS. So most of that peak bone mass in women is achieved really late 20s to mid 30s, which then brings us to those pubertal years, having a regular cycle, having good sex hormone and estrogen levels is important. And the biggest condition that we worry about, the most important endocrine condition in this adolescent and childbearing age is polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS.
0: And people have called it all kinds of things like PICOS and and stuff like that. When we see a young woman, you know, she comes in, she says, my cycles don't come every month. You know, I have had only... Eight cycles or less this year. I have more acne, you know, on my face and on my back. And I also have some facial hair. And for a young person, this can be very disturbing. I mean, what are some of the things that a young person with this? polycystic ovary syndrome, which is the commonest endocrine disorder. Well, maybe outside of osteopenia osteoporosis for young women. What are some of the things a young woman will notice in her body?
1: I will say, so it is hard really to define polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS or PCOS. It is really, it's a pretty complex Disorder possibly with multiple etiologies, but what we've kind of agreed on—different societies have agreed on—is an ovulation or oligoovulation, which means less frequent or fewer menstrual cycles, is one of the key features. Hyperandrogenism, which is high testosterone levels, in layman's terms, is a second key clinical feature, and then polycystic ovaries, as seen on an ultrasound. The big thing here is really as much as we have some clinical guidance to diagnose somebody with PCOS, it is ultimately a diagnosis of exclusion, which means you really have to think about our whole endocrine system and the reproductive system too. They are very complex. They're very sophisticated. So it's often hard to distinguish what is puberty and what is truly something, a disorder that needs to be fixed. So I will start with saying when most young women go through Menarche or the beginning of their menstrual cycle, the hypothalamus pituitary axis, which I'm sure we'll talk in detail about later, has not developed completely. So that first year of their period, they may not get one period every month or 12 periods. And oftentimes it is okay to wait and have seven or eight periods that year. But this is a woman who's been having a period for nine years for example and only has six or seven periods a year that may not be a normal thing or a good thing.
0: We're saying that she did uh, start achieve menarche and she had an initial area of irregular periods they became regular and now she's a uh, young woman and all of a sudden she's having irregular periods or less than eight periods in one year. So that's uh, definitely a Good history
1: and a good physical exam are your key starters to that whole discussion. So knowing that history, when did that first period start? Was it regular and then got irregular, or has it always been irregular? How quickly did things change? So we see families who have excessive or thick facial hair, and then we see women who say, I had absolutely no hand or face or limb hair. And here I am suddenly, over the course of two or three months, having to shave every single day. So the timeline is very, very important because PCOS is probably your most common presentation and consideration, but an androgen secreting tumor can present and show up very, very quickly. It's less common in that young adolescent. You'll probably worry more about it in your 30-plus-year-old patient or a patient approaching menopause, yet those are important clinical considerations. Before we jump to a diagnosis, it's also important to remember other hormones like thyroid hormones, high prolactin levels, can often disrupt periods or cause changes so looking for other reasons that that period may was irregular is important bmi the body mass index blood pressure other clinical features all then go into play to diagnose ultimately a patient with polycystic ovarian syndrome
0: so a, a young lady undergoing normal puberty mm-hmm. or a young lady with polycysts there could be an overlap between just normal puberty, there's nothing crazy going on, or you actually have polycystic ovaries. You are not making an egg every month from your ovaries. I mean, how can we make a, a, a distinction?
1: I will say there is no easy answer to that. Yes, yes. Endocrinology is a lot about drawing labs and repeating labs and being patient. Having said that, though, so as we talked about, an ovulation or oligoovulation is an important feature. Rotterdam criteria for diagnosis of polycystic ovaries are some of the most commonly used criteria, and the first or important feature here is that an or ovulation Even though it's not used for diagnosis, things like changes in FSH and LH are important clues. Uh, Women with PCOS tend to have higher levels of LH, or luteinizing hormone, and slightly or relatively lower levels of follicle-stimulating hormones, or FSH, and that's the reason they're not producing a follicle every month. The Rotterdam criteria definitely have high testosterone or hyperandrogenism as one of their clinical features. The Androgen Excess PCOS Society actually says that is the key feature for diagnosis of PCOS. So checking a testosterone level, checking for biochemical evidence of high testosterone is important. Just to confuse things a little bit more, I do say there are conditions like atypical congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So this is more a genetic defect involving some of the enzymes in the adrenal steroid synthesis pathway. And there are hormone labs like a 17-hydroxyprogesterone level that will help you distinguish somebody with... A typical clinical congenital adrenal hyperplasia versus your patient with PCOS, knowing that your garden variety PCOS is probably still your most common diagnosis, and if you worry about it, send that. C-A-H, to your endocrinologist?
0: So, you know, when the young woman comes and she's like, you know, doctor, you know, I'm not having my periods. And in some cultures, actually, the family members think they are pregnant and some of these women are virgins. And so they're not having their periods. They're gaining weight, again, buying into this story of pregnancy when they are not. And they just, for a young person with all the facial hair, the acne, and then also maybe some hair on the abdomen. For a woman, the distribution of the hair pattern looks like that of a man. For a young person, this can be so distressing. So, and you've talked about some of the test lab work that we do for diagnosis. And one of the things that we probably should talk about also is the ultrasound that shows us all the cysts on the ovaries. Is there hope? You know, what do we tell these young women? Is this a condition that is fairly treatable after we make the diagnosis?
1: So yes, PCOS is a condition which can largely be managed actually by lifestyle modifications. So I always tell patients this is probably the easiest and the hardest thing that you will ever do. So going back to the complexity, we really still haven't figured out the true cause of polycystic ovarian syndrome. There are definitely societies that are divided over, is androgen or too much androgen more important, or is it really just the cysts or the lack of ovulation that is more important in polycystic ovaries? Just to give you an idea of the complexities, we've also broken traditional barriers. So if you looked at research over the past several years, you always thought about a typical woman with PCOS as being obese or overweight. But we now know that thin PCOS also exists. So when we think about patients with PCOS, we are actually really thinking about four different phenotypes. So your classic PCOS is the one who's going to come to you with that missing period or irregular period. She's going to have androgen excess, and she's going to have multiple cysts on the ovaries. They are really not cysts at all. They are really immature follicles that just haven't made it all the way and ovulated. But there are three other phenotypes to consider. Type B really only has an irregular period and too much androgens. So think about it. I just told you it's called polycystic ovaries, but you do not need cysts on the ovaries to diagnose the condition. The third phenotype is actually an ovulatory PCOS. So yes, I'm throwing more things at you now, which means now I have this young woman who comes to me saying, I have facial hair that I don't like. I have cysts on the ovaries as told by my gynecologist, but I have a regular period. So yes, you can have women who still continue to ovulate, but have all of the other signs and symptoms that we talked about. And then finally, your type D or the fourth phenotype is your irregular period and cysts on the ovaries, but no increased androgen symptoms or hirsutism. So it's definitely a very complex clinical picture. And this is where I say some people will have beautiful response or feel like their symptoms are being controlled very nicely, versus there are other people or other women who are going to have a hard time or feel like they're not responding to therapy. It truly depends on both the genotype and the phenotype that then leads to how difficult is this polycystic ovarian syndrome to control.
0: So when you say genotype like the genetic makeup and phenotype how they have expressed this condition and so but you, and you talked about lifestyle modification what can you expatiate on that please
1: So when we talk about what cause so we simply say people with polycystic ovaries don't have enough periods during a year, eight or less typically, going or digging deeper into that lack of period. One of the hypotheses is metabolic derangement or insulin resistance. Very simplistically speaking, I often explain to my patients in the office, hey, if you are producing a lot of insulin, that really doesn't help you. Pick up those sugars and transport that energy to your tissues, to your ovaries, to ovulate every month. You're not going to ovulate every month and you're not going to have the estrogen levels that you need. Now going into details, too much insulin actually stimulates the tecal cells in the ovaries. These are the cells, so it's actually the ovaries that should be producing estrogen that are now producing more androgens than before. So that fecal stimulation by insulin is probably one of the mechanisms that's causing or propagating hyperandrogenism, which for the layman, it's really that increased facial hair. A lot of women come to me saying, I need to shave my man beard every day or at least twice a week. So if we look at what we know from the diabetes world or treating pre-diabetes or insulin resistance, a big lifestyle change. Typically, low-carb or no-carb diets and moderate to severe intensity exercise five to seven times a week often helps mitigate that insulin resistance and hence mitigate the symptoms of polycystic ovaries.
0: So, you know, for the young woman out there with irregular periods, facial hair or abnormal hair pattern on her abdomen that looks like a man's pattern and, um, you know, just you know, gaining weight, not happy with themselves. You could have a diagnosis of polycystic ovaries. You want to talk to your primary care doctor and they can make arrangements as to whether you need to see an OBGYN and an endocrinologist to make a diagnosis so that we can treat. Because in in addition to lifestyle modification for this, I like the fact that you said that the ovary is supposed to be producing estrogen the female hormone, but because of this condition, it's now producing male hormones that is making the women hairy. So in addition to exercising, watching what you eat, losing weight, are there medications that we can use to help this condition?
1: Yes, definitely. So I like to say polycystic ovarian syndrome is something that I would want every primary care physician or family physician to recognize, but should ideally be treated really as a team effort by a gynecologist and an endocrinologist. And generally speaking, we say there is a tri-pronged approach to treating polycystic ovaries. As an endocrinologist, I always say Balancing the female hormones, so birth control or oral contraceptive pills, would be something I leave to my gynecologist colleagues. And then managing the insulin resistance and the hyperandrogenism is something I like to take over or manage in conjunction with the gynecologist. So when we think about insulin resistance, medications that sensitize the body to insulin or make your insulin work for you often work in a condition like PCOS. Metformin is a medicine that's often used to treat diabetes. It's also used to prevent prediabetes from turning into diabetes and seems to work very effectively in women with polycystic ovaries. So pioglitazone or actose being one of the medications available here in the United States is a beautiful insulin sensitizer. It's often not utilized enough, mostly because of the concerns of weight gain, which Even though you don't have to have obesity uh, to have PCOS, 60% of women with PCOS will be overweight or obese. So thiazolidones are not frequently used, but are an option. And then inositol is another uh, substance that is often used to improve insulin sensitivity. I commonly like to use spironolactone or aldactone. So, aldactone or spironolactone really blocks the effects of testosterone in the body. It does not prevent or keep a woman from making more testosterone. It is important to understand that distinction because it will help reduce the severity of your symptoms, but it may not stop that facial hair or the chest or the back hair from coming or growing in the first place. Spironolactone can be associated with birth defects during pregnancy. So that is one of the reasons having some form of contraception or preventing pregnancy is extremely crucial. That's where that joint practice with gynecology uh, often helps. So yes, we have insulin sensitizers and antiandrogens that we can use. And then finally, I say, which we haven't talked or touched upon a lot right now. But subfertility or infertility, difficulty getting pregnant is often one, a common problem in women with polycystic ovaries. And at times like that, ovulation inducers like clomiphene citrate and
0: other agents can also be used. And we're going to segue into that, the relationship of uh, endocrine disorders with fertility. I know one last, there's been a conservative surgical approach in the form of a a robotic or laparoscopic ovarian drilling procedure for people that have... (laughs) very difficult to manage polycystic ovaries. (laughs) What are your thoughts on that? And that is a procedure I have performed in my career for patients that that was just, you know, the ovaries are huge, the walls of the ovaries are very thick and they have just been resistant to all forms of intervention. And we've gone in and performed, you know, a procedure called ovarian drilling in which we've attempted to incise some of these follicles and um, it's been shown to have results, you know, varied results.
1: This is definitely where I rest on my gynecology colleagues for their expertise.